This is the English Heritage Podcast. Welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can stream and download new episodes every Thursday. Just make sure to subscribe to stay up to date. Today, as we reach the height of the summer season, we're looking back at the origins of the beach holiday and the history of British seaside resorts. A trip to the beach when the sun is out is something we take for granted these days, but in the 18th and 19th centuries, things were a bit different. Joining us now to talk about how going to the seaside has changed over the centuries is Dr. Alan Brodie, who is a senior investigator at Historic England and a visiting fellow at Bournemouth University. Hello. Thanks for coming on. Worth also saying that um, Bournemouth University is, of course, on the south coast and is a seaside town. And I believe it's got an archaeology department as well. It does indeed, and it's an ideal place for me to carry on my research in the history of the English seaside. Absolutely. So what sparked your interest in studying the history of tourism? Well, it began with a very different project. I was working in the late 1990s on the history of English prisons and visiting prisons up and down the country, and myself and my colleagues decided we would stay at seaside resorts wherever possible just because they'd be nice places to stay. And I recognised very quickly there was a need for far greater work and celebration of their interesting heritage and history. And so I put forward a proposal to do my first History of Seaside Resorts project and got on with it at the beginning of the current century. So does that make you a foremost thinker on this sort of area of study? Well, I think that, that's a bit of a grand assumption that I'm a foremost <laughs> thinker, but I'm one of the most sort of active people in the field and particularly active on the built environment and the early history of seaside resorts. Okay, so let's look at that early history then, the origins of the seaside visit. When did it all start and why? Well, I suppose the very origins can be traced back into the 16th and the 17th century when people were travelling to spas to take the waters to improve their health so that places like Bath and Buxton, Tunbridge Wells and Harrogate were popular with people who wanted to drink the waters. One of these early spas was Scarborough. And of course, Scarborough has the sea as well. And it was the logical place where you would make the link between drinking spa water and using the sea. And what you have at Scarborough is also the development of a local culture where affluent patients, in inverted commas, would come to take the water, but enjoy socialising with fellow wealthy people taking the waters. I see. And at these spa towns where people were taking the fresh waters, were they also bathing in it? To begin with, it was fairly rare to bathe in bath waters. One of the exceptions, of course, being bath itself. It was usually to, to drink the waters. But by the late 17th century, we know of at least one person and probably more people who were, wait for this, drinking seawater and sometimes mixing it to make it more palatable with such concoctions as milk and red wine, not necessarily <laughs> at the same time. Right, okay. We certainly wouldn't recommend that today, obviously. No. But that's an interesting uh, fad, I suppose, that you could say that came up as a result of this visiting seaside areas or, or spa town 
facilities? Well, it was a mixture of a sort of sociable fad, but it was also deemed to be a medical necessity. It was a good thing to go to a spa to drink the waters. It would improve your health. And there were no end of doctors willing to write theses and books and convince patients of the merits of their particular spa to get customers. So some of it is sort of medical and scientific necessity, and some of it is doctors. I wouldn't call them quacks because they may well have believed in in the, the medicinal value of the waters they were advocating, but they were certainly had an eye on making a shilling or two. So when did these seaside resorts start to rise in popularity and become a place where not just the well-heeled would go to? Well, I mean, it begins with literally just a trickle of people going to what we would now call a seaside resort. In those days, they were just coastal towns where people had access to the sea. The numbers in those days were limited by you know, wealth, time to travel and the limitations of transport. But by the early 19th century, Margate was attracting 100,000 visitors a year because we know those are the figures of people coming down the Thames on steamers. And a century later, in the eve of the First World War, somewhere like Blackpool was being visited by millions of people. So that's the course of the 19th century. You see a huge sort of growth and in interest in seaside resorts. Yes. And in different parts of the country, obviously, Margate being in Kent, right on the tip there uh, towards the top of uh, Kent. And of course, Blackpool in the northwest of England. So there must have been a lot of other seaside towns as well, uh, trying to compete to attract people to come and visit as as well. Well, as I mentioned already, we have Scarborough certainly attracting people because of its spa and then its seawater, probably by the end of the 17th century. But in the early 18th century, we have towns as different as Whitby, Margate and Brighton by the 1730s. And it became pretty widespread by the middle of the 18th century. So we have towns as far apart as Blackpool and Exmouth, Exmouth and Devon, and Hastings down in Sussex through to Dorset, Weymouth in Dorset. But one place you might find surprising to discover was a seaside resort was Liverpool, because we think of it now as a major world port and city. But it was a small but rapidly growing town in the 1720s, and we have very clear evidence that people were actually bathing in the sea, or perhaps more accurately, the murky Mersey, as early as the 1720s. Very interesting. So what was the first seaside resort? Was it Scarborough with that dual offering? I would think it would have to be Scarborough. We, we certainly know from Dr. Witte's, the second edition of Dr. Witte's treatise in 1667, that he was using seawater to cure his gout, probably drinking it. I think there was other towns like Whitby and and Liverpool and Scarborough. They were probably all beginning to explore the options of bathing in the sea all around the first sort of 10 or 20 years of the 18th century. What was involved in this actual bathing in the sea in the 18th and 19th centuries then? How did people do it? Well, the first thing was that bathing in the sea was not done for pleasure. It was done as a medical procedure. And as I mentioned before, doctors would expound the virtue of, of drinking waters. By the early 18th century, they were talking about the value of bathing in the sea and how that could improve your health. They were also very clear that this was a medical procedure and it must take place under medical supervision, thus ensuring themselves a nice income. The key instrument for bathing in the sea at the beginning of the 18th century, right through believed or not, until the end of the 19th century, was a bathing machine. An alternative, of course, to bathing in the sea via a bathing machine 
was to actually use bathhouses. And a number of seaside resorts from the 18th century onwards would provide bathhouses where the water that people bathed in would be at least slightly warmed. Oh, I see. And brought actually to a building on the seafront. Yes, they would almost always be very close to the seafront because they would want to be able, at particularly high tide, to pump water into a reservoir. And as a very amusing description at Western Supermare at the beginning of the 19th century, of what sounds like people taking slightly warm seawater showers in something approaching perhaps a large wardrobe cubicle. That's about the best way to think of it. Right. Okay. That's very interesting. But about the bathing machines then, it sounds very mechanical, but it, I think it's actually quite a simple contraption, is it not? It's more like a wagon, isn't it? At its simplest level, it's a hut on wheels. It's drawn from the seashore out into the sea to allow somebody to bathe in the sea. So the procedure would be that somebody in lightly dressed clothing would get into the back of a bathing machine. The horse would then pull the bathing machine out into the sea, by which time the man or woman would have disrobed. The woman would have put on a linen slip. The man would have in the Georgian period and into the Victorian period, bathed naked. Once sufficiently out to sea, a canopy would be lowered at the back of the hut. And the same steps you had climbed up to get into the hut, you would climb down and you would dip in the sea. You weren't swimming, you were just dipping in the sea. Most people couldn't swim at this period. And so you were often accompanied by dippers or bathing guides, usually women who would look after you while you were taking this dip in the sea. This was necessary, allegedly, for safety and because it was a medical procedure. But as I mentioned before, this was a way of monetizing the sea. This was how to take a perfectly natural resource and turn it into income for people. It's remarkable how many people are involved in someone taking a dip. Um, it's more like three dips, isn't it, really? It got big business at times. Yes, uh, dipping into people's pockets as well. Indeed. Um, are there any bathing machines that are left from the period that uh, people can see in museums today? Well, almost every bathing machine was removed at the beginning of the Second World War to allow us to put in sort of defences to protect the country. There's a, a very good reproduction of a bathing machine at Eastbourne, and there are said to be two of George III's machines at Weymouth, although it's not entirely clear if they were. There's some conflicting evidence. But there is one star original survivor and that's Queen Victoria's bathing machine at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Osborne House was built by Queen Victoria as her family's sort of seaside retreat. Her predecessors had used the Royal Marine Pavilion at Brighton, but she liked to get away from the busy sort of atmosphere of Brighton and, and spend time more quietly on the Isle of Wight with her family. She had this bathing machine built, and it's, a, it's one of the, I think it's probably the biggest for one person that was ever built. And it ran on rails from the shore down to the, the sea. And it didn't have a canvas canopy, but it had a veranda at the back with a solid canopy over to allow Queen Victoria to descend down into the sea in the shade and enjoy the, the benefits of the seawater. So obviously, Queen Victoria's period bathing machine is quite a popular way of taking waters as in bathing in them, seawaters, that is. When do they start phasing out and people start to enter the water under their own steam, so to speak? Well, I think people have always been entering the water under their own steam. But the sort of higher end of the sea bathing market, if you like, was expected to 
adhere to using these bathing machines. There's wonderful entries in the Reverend Kilvert's diary in the 1860s, where he talks about being forced to use a bathing machine at Western Supermare, whereas what he really wanted to do was to go out into the sea naked. So this is a Victorian reverend in the 1860s. And in fact, on the first day that he was at Western Supermare, he had to use a bathing machine because he'd forgotten to bring his towel. But the second time he goes into the sea, he just went further down the beach, away from the, the rest of the public, and just ran in naked. He caused a scandal at Shanklin a couple of years later, uh, I think it was in the 1870s by now, because he bathed again nude in the sea, and women were outraged by this behavior. <laughs> but the Georgian sort of nakedness that men did was phasing out you know, in conservative sort of mid-19th century Victorian period. And instead, people went on to practice what was became known as Macintosh bathing, in the sense that they would change into their swimming costume back in their lodgings or in their hotel and go down to the beach in their Macintoshes, take them off and, and go in the sea. How would that work then? Is a Macintosh like a jacket? Oh, yes. A Macintosh is a long sort of what we call a raincoat, a rain, a rain yeah. mac. Um, and it was just enough to cover them. Uh, a bit like sort of people who do that sort of cold water swimming have those sort of nice thick long coats to get into after they've been in the cold water. Right. So a bit like a dressing gown, effectively. Um, it's, yeah, but it was their coat rather than a sort of specialised dressing gown. And how did the bathing suit actually look for a, for a man and a woman? Well, it was sort of much more demure than, than a modern one. It would be full sort of body cover. Your arms would be exposed. Um, it would be almost like a dungaree type arrangement, you know, on the top. And then it would be just down to sort of just above your knees on your legs. And that would be sort of what men would wear and women would wear a slightly sort of fancier version of that sort of shape of garment. When did that type of garment come in? Because you described the women wearing a kind of slip as they entered the sea from a bathing machine. So that linen slip was a feature of Georgian England and was one reason why men frequently are mentioned as buying telescopes when they went on holiday in Georgian England because they would like to watch the women coming out of the sea because the linen slips would cling to their figures. <laughs> right, um, okay. So this was something that was obviously scandalous by the time you get to the Victorian period and they moved to much more demure sort of outfits for bathing in the sea. Yes, and almost a bit more unisex by the sounds of things with the sort of... They weren't unisex, but they were broadly along the same lines. But I mean, you would mm. never confuse a man's costume with a woman's. So in the early days of the seaside resorts, you've sort of mentioned that this is a habit and activity for the people who had the money, the doctors who were able to charge, etc. When did visiting the seaside and taking a dip become an experience for the masses? People could, anybody could obviously go to the seaside if they were in the locality and they could enjoy sort of going in the sea. It was very much a thing, an element of sort of Georgian society. It was, a, it was an upper sort of echelon feature of society. But even in the 18th century, it's clear that in some places, people were coming some distance to bathe in the sea. At Blackpool, there are these people who are referred to as padjamas um, because their outfits looked like pajamas, as we would now call them. And they would walk from sort of nearby sort of industrial towns and cities or would come in carts to actually bathe in the sea at Blackpool. At Margate, because Margate's connected to London by the River Thames, people could come on cheapish cargo vessels down the River Thames 
And there are rarely references, rather sort of snooty references, to Margate being full of London shopkeepers. They were being despised and mocked by the wealthier visitors. But they were shutting up their shop in London for a week, getting on these cargo boats that were gradually becoming passenger boats because there was more money in passengers than cargo, and were coming down the River Thames to bathe at Margate. What sort of time period are we talking about when large numbers of people begin to enjoy these visits to the seaside using other types of modes of transport, such as locomotives, you know, trains, that sort of thing? Well, Margate was serviced by these cargo boats in the 18th century. By 1815, they were gradually being replaced by steamers. And so Margate by the 1830s is getting 100,000 definite visitors by the River Thames alone let alone the number of people who might be coming by coach. So that's that's the beginning of a form of mass tourism, but it's really from the 1840s onwards when the railway system begins to crystallise into a network that you get significant numbers of people coming by train. And by the eve of the First World War, you literally have millions of people visiting seaside resorts every year. And that infrastructure must have been a massive boom time for those seaside resorts. Can you describe the impact of train travel on British towns that are by the sea as a result of trains? Well, it was profound. When you'd had hundreds or perhaps a few thousand visitors visiting a Georgian seaside resort, it was a small-scale thing with small-scale entertainment venues. Very quickly from the 1840s onwards, you're into the hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of visitors coming every year. So the first and obvious thing is that railway stations are transformed. There were two small railway stations at Blackpool by the 1860s. They both had to be rebuilt at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, into stations almost on the size of a London station. They were so big because they were dealing with millions of visitors coming during the summer months. But you also get a more widespread transformation of resorts you get vast new areas of housing because the populations of seaside resorts, as well as the number of visitors, increased rapidly. And seaside resorts became popular places to live and to commute from as the railway network became bigger. And so from really sort of 1850s, 60s onwards through to the First World War, you see a huge transformation of seaside resorts, such that they're growing as quickly, if not quicker, than major industrial towns and cities. And I suppose along with that infrastructure comes other parts of the economy, such as hotels, restaurants, fish and chip shops, I suppose, this sort of thing? Absolutely. It's across the whole range you get new housing on a large scale. And it's not just residential housing. These are the houses along the seafront that, okay, a family lived in, but they were very specifically also for letting out rooms, lodgings, during the summer season. And that's why when you go to a seaside resort, you will see along the seafront three, four, even five-storied houses on the front. You go one street in, maybe even half a street in, and you begin to get the size of the houses dropping down till you get maybe a couple of hundred yards inland, and you're back to a normal two-storied house because there's value in being on the seafront. There's value in a building having a sea view so the owners could exploit it, um, effectively get more money from visitors who are coming to the resort. Yes, and not just the sea view, but also quick access to the sea and to all the other amenities that exist on the seafront, I expect. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Staying on the theme of travel then, as we move forward in time to the 20th century, how did cars and buses affect resorts? Did that help provide even more impetus and more visitors? Absolutely, yes. More people could travel to the seaside. But there was a slight change in emphasis about what happened at seaside resorts. Railways had effectively concentrated people in the centres of resorts because this would be where the railway stations were. Once you have cars, buses and sharabangs, I know you've heard this great word sharabang, it's a form of bus but with bench-type seats and you don't have a central corridor in a sharabang. You actually access your seats from either side of the, of the vehicle. So once this type of vehicle was available, it meant that people could travel out to the suburban areas of resorts, creating new suburbs. And what you get is the effect of resorts now spreading along the coast as far as, as the coast will permit, if you like. You also get the development of new seaside resorts that don't have a railway station, places like Jaywick Sands in Essex or, or Peace Haven on the Sussex coast. You also get formerly genteel resorts that were largely missed by less affluent uh, holidaymakers, suffering from visits from these, these sort of day trippers and the like. And so places like Cornwall, you know, that were once quite exclusive locations and resorts are being visited by ordinary people. And for some resorts, this was a problem because they wanted to retain something of their genteel character, but they also wanted to have trippers, so they didn't want the two to get together. And at Scarborough, they came up with an absolutely ingenious solution. They built a separate station for trippers about a quarter of a mile outside the town so that People could arrive you know, on a tripper train, if you like, rather than a regular train. They would get out at this station. They would be funneled down to the seaside where they could enjoy <laughs> their fun and then come back up to the railway station without ever troubling anybody in the town, the quiet life of people in genteel Scarborough. Right. So I suppose the next question is, do, do those two stations still exist in Scarborough? Not used as a station, but you can see where the excursion station was as you go out on the train from Scarborough towards York. What about other historical features that can still be seen at these seaside resorts? Are there any relics of this sort of uh, heyday of, say, Victorian bathing? Well, no, I think the great relic that survives, rather than bathing, is actually seaside piers. They're, They're one of the great, wonderful things that Britain invented and exported to a few places around the world, but really it's a quintessentially British thing. Really from the 1850s onwards, people enjoyed the thrill of walking on water, so to speak. And a hundred years ago, at the beginning of the 20th century, there were a hundred in existence. And today we still have around 50, but piers are very vulnerable to the sea and to fires and to other kind of damage, like a ship sort of crashing into them has happened from time to time. But there's also a wonderful legacy in seaside resorts of things like theatres and cinemas. There's some great cinema buildings, early ones in Blackpool and Margate, for instance, dating from before the First World War. And the largest of these cinemas was ever built at the seaside was the Odeon in Blackpool, which is now the Funny Girls Review Bar, a magnificent sort of art deco building. So there are great sort of architectural features. And I would give a big shout out to the ordinary sort of seafront house that I've already mentioned, because these were incredibly important to the economy of the seaside, because they were the homes of people who worked at the seaside resort. They provided the lodgings, and yet they could also be used to 
provide other entertainment facilities. And as we now see, they often have amusements or fish and chip shops in the ground floors of of, um, former houses. But um, why do some resorts such as Blackpool and Margate have these other features, horticultural features, these so-called winter gardens? Well, it's going to come as a bit of a shock to anybody listening to this podcast, but it does rain sometime at the British Seaside Resort. (laughs) And so there was always a market for somewhere to get out of the rain and keep warm and dry. And winter gardens were ideal. They were effectively large greenhouses. They were smaller versions of the wonderful Crystal Palace that had been built for the Great Exhibition. And they begin to appear at seaside resorts from the 1870s onwards. And they're ideal because they were a place where you could grow more or less exotic plants, that you could take tea, you could listen to concerts, and stroll around while outside other people who couldn't afford to go to the winter gardens were getting cold and wet. I see. So in Blackpool and Margate, do we have these sort of large structures that look a bit like greenhouses still standing? The Margate one doesn't look like that. That's quite a bit later, that one. It dates from the early part of the 20th century. But at Blackpool, it's very clearly part of it. You can still see that it was a glazed sort of structure. One of the best is at Great Yarmouth, which actually began life on the Devon coast and was dismantled and erected in Great Yarmouth at the beginning of the 20th century. And when you see that, it's very obviously related to the Crystal Palace and the tradition of building greenhouses in England. So we don't really see them much these days. There are, there's something of the past that, if we're lucky, they still exist. They are still there at a number of resorts, but they may not be as easily recognisable as they would have been, say, in the late Victorian period. Yes, because in Bournemouth, of course, where you're the visiting fellow, there are winter gardens in the town centre, which I believe were certainly redone as part of the town centre enhancement scheme several years ago. But there's no sense that there's any sort of structure there that you can go inside and, you know, see exotic plants or anything like that. It's a completely different setup. Yes, the the name Winter Gardens gets effectively transferred to general sort of entertainment complexes that people would go to in in inclement weather, but also uh, they would be entertainment venues for entertainment in the evening. And the incredible Winter Gardens at Blackpool still have some of that feel of the winter garden about them, but it also contains a theatre, a big theatre slash cinema, and various sort of other rooms and bars and, and entertainment venues within it. So it's a, a, a very elaborate entertainment complex now. If someone's visiting a British or English seaside resort, what are the more unusual historical features that they might catch sight of as they're sort of licking their ice cream and gazing up at the sun? <laughs> Well, I think one of the things to look out for and be be aware of is that the seaside resort has always been a place of work and a place to deal with matters of war. There's very little evidence left now of their role in defending our beaches dating back beyond the Second World War, but right through to right back to the 18th century. But you can at places like Deal, you can still see the amazing Deal Castle that was to defend sort of Tudor England. There are pillboxes at some seaside resorts and others have um, martello towers designed to defend England against any attack by Napoleon. But there are also features on seafronts to do with the working dimension of of seaside resorts. And and one very good place to see that is Worthing, where there's still quite a number of capstans that were used for winding boats up onto the shore after fishing. 
And somewhere like Hastings at the east end of the beach still has a small but very active fishing fleet on the beach right next to the amusement park and trampoline park. But one of the most curious, and and one of the reasons that I did a recent book on the seafront, is again at Worthing. There's a pole that sticks out of the beach at one end of the beach at Worthing. And it is just a pole, and it seems to mean nothing. And I went to visit it about five years ago, because I had been to see it about 15 years before, and it previously had a sign on it. And the sign said that this was a designated place that people could preach, i.e. preach the Bible. But with the removal of the sign, suddenly the pole meant nothing. And this is what inspired me to then write a book about the seafront, because I wanted to explore the story very specifically of seafront, but the the changing sort of meaning and use of it over the last two and three hundred years. Is that the most impressive surviving feature, would you say? I think it's probably the least impressive surviving feature. (laughs) It just piqued my interest. For me, a clear favourite is Blackpool Tower. When I say Blackpool Tower, it's, it's much more than just the tower. It was built between 1891 and 1894, and in its day, it was the tallest building in Britain. Uh, it was 518 feet tall, and it's obviously based on the Eiffel Tower. Although, as I once amusingly said in a lecture to people in Lyon, that, of course, Paris had copied Blackpool, which went down very well, um, despite Blackpool being two years newer than, than Paris. But the Blackpool Tower is more than just the tower. It's a complex of entertainment buildings, structures, most famously the circus and, of course, the ballroom as features on Strictly Come Dancing uh, in most years until recently. Yes, because whereabouts is that in the tower? Well, if you imagine the shape of the Eiffel Tower with the legs fanning out, um, the circus stands within within the legs and the ballroom is also there within the tower building. Because it's, if you look at the, the elevation, if you like, it's a very wide building. It's just the tower is, occupies the middle bit of it. And I suppose there's a viewing platform as well. There are two levels of public viewing platform, including an absolutely terrifying glass walkway that you can stand on up at about 500 feet, which takes getting some used to if you've got a touch of vertigo like me. <laughs> um, but it's a great visit. And did that exist when it was built, or is it a later edition? Uh, no, that's that's a later edition with sort of modern armoured glass to, to make you safe. And I suppose it also satisfies the needs of modern-day thrill-seekers who are probably a bit more hardy than uh, their Victorian or Georgian counterparts. It's thrilling enough for me, but at the other end of Blackpool, you've got the big one, which is the most terrifying thing I've done at the seaside, which is this huge roller coaster which was two minutes of me being absolutely terrified uh, i had to do it once just to say i'd done it but i can assure listeners never again <laughs> too much fun there's still quite a lot for people modern people to enjoy at the seaside by the sounds of things and earlier on we sort of talked about the victorian period being quite a important period for the history of the, the english seaside so what would you say has been the peak of British seaside visiting? What era is it? What century? It always felt to me like it should be the 1950s or the 1960s, just because of the way it was depicted. But when I began to research it more, it statistically was probably the mid-1970s for the seaside holiday, i.e. staying for a week or two at the seaside. And for day trips to the seaside, I'm really not sure when that peaked. You get the impression it may have been in the late 20th century, but the seaside 
is still an incredibly popular place for people to go on a day trip today. Well, yes, you only need to look at the local news or national news whenever it's the hottest day of the year in the UK and there's footage of people sprawling on the various beaches. Uh, Bournemouth, of course, being one of the popular places on the South Coast. So, yes, I agree with you. The British seaside resort is still quite a popular venue for day trippers and even holiday makers. They don't necessarily have to go abroad to enjoy the sun, although there will be some rain, obviously, at times. What do you say, if at all, has led to the decline of the British seaside resorts? I mean, has it even declined? Well, the mid-70s figure, you know, for the peak holidays is almost certainly a reflection initially of the competition from the Mediterranean, particularly Spain. You now suddenly got cheap, affordable easily accessible holidays on a beach where you were guaranteed sun and you could even enjoy your beer and fish and chips from home. But there have been other reasons why perhaps seaside resorts have been looked on less favourably because people have found other ways to spend their leisure time and their disposable income. They visit heritage sites, they walk in the country, they go to music festivals, they go shopping trips, they go on city breaks. Any of these can potentially sort of lure people away from just going to the seaside resort. Because despite my love of the seaside resort, I do accept that it may have an image issue. Despite all the hard work that people do to say seaside is interesting and it do come here, it only takes a few bits of bad publicity about something suggesting it's old-fashioned or scruffy to put people off. But they don't say that you know places like Bath or York are, are old-fashioned. They call it heritage, and, and somewhere like Weymouth has got the most amazing Georgian seafront. Why don't people sort of leap up and down and, and proclaim this is a great destination if you love your heritage? Yes, it's a good point. But um, if someone's listening and planning a seaside trip, they're thinking about the heritage that they can experience whilst being at the seaside, let alone just being near the sea or in the sea. What English heritage sites could they take in whilst they're staying in the area of that particular beach? Well, there aren't many English heritage sites that were designed, if you like, with the seaside in mind. The obvious one I've already mentioned is Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, a wonderful house to visit, you know, Queen Victoria's family seaside home. But there are a number of places that were or are seaside resorts where there are great sort of historical buildings that English heritage care for that are worth visiting. Scarborough Castle, wonderful Norman castle, sitting on the on the clifftop, hilltop above the seaside resort is an amazing building to visit. A little bit further along the coast, you've got the great Gothic Abbey at Whitby on the clifftop above the harbour. And just beyond the harbour, you've got the beach. At Dover Castle, now people are going to say Dover isn't a seaside resort, but it was a seaside resort in the late 18th and early 19th century. And there are little vestiges of the old resort still surviving along that very busy dual carriageway as you're about to get into the port. And I suppose perhaps most famously is Battle Abbey near Hastings, you know, the, where the great battle took place in 1066, just three or four miles inland from the very popular seaside resort at Hastings. Yes, and of those resorts in Kent, you could also take in Warmer Castle and Deal Castle, which are part of Absolutely. Henry VIII's device forts. Indeed. So you're near the sea, you're near heritage, and you can quite easily visit other places in the same week or maybe even on the same day if you're brief with your visits. 
What next then for seaside resorts in the UK or, or in England specifically? Do they have a sunny future, would you say? I think they have got a great future because we're still very much in love with the seaside and, and particularly the, the English or British seaside. A lot of resorts have been investing a lot of money in their seafronts recently. Um, if you like, their shop windows, or if you want to take an analogy from industry, these are the engines that are driving the tourism industry at seaside resorts. This has come about because of rising sea levels due to climate change. But a lot of seaside resorts haven't just built a bigger wall. They've actually taken the opportunity to create a new public realm, new attractions, new features. Probably the most striking one is the comedy carpet at Blackpool, which is a tiled mosaic tile arrangement about the size of a hockey pitch that features a thousand jokes from a hundred years of British comedy. It's like a big welcome mat in front of Blackpool <laughs> Tower now. And it is laugh out loud funny. And it, always people on it walking about just cracking up at some of the jokes <laughs> and, and they evoke great memories. And you go a little bit further up the coast and Morecambe has done the very obvious thing of putting up an Eric Morecambe statue a few years ago. And it's almost impossible to get a photograph of that statue without people posing beside it in the kind of classic Eric Morecambe pose that he would take at the end of a show. So I think seaside resorts have got a great future. They're investing in new attractions, improving the quality of the accommodation. There are new and interesting restaurants opening. I think there are even more reasons now to visit the English seaside than ever before. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're digging into the history of the English garden. We start off at the beginning of the sort of 18th century as more formal gardens, perhaps. And by the sort of mid-early 19th century, the gardens are very much becoming something that's supposed to at least look, although perfectly designed, naturalistic. Thanks for listening. See you next time.